good morning. Glad to be with you guys. Uh, as Mark mentioned, uh, he and I go quite a ways back, probably a good uh, 20 years or so, and I'll get into that story a little more later. Um, but the first time that I was ever in this church, um, I wasn't allowed to come upstairs. I was in Boy Scouts. It wasn't because I had some hideous deformity, uh, but I wasn't allowed to come upstairs, and our scoutmaster let us know that uh, because essentially we were teenagers, and so we had our own uh, issues. And he's like, do not go upstairs into the sanctuary. If you do, we will lose the ability to meet in this building. And if you had met us at that time, you would have agreed. Uh, we, were, we were hooligans. Uh, so I remember many years meeting in the basement, uh, Troop 23, Boy Scouts, and uh, I, I cherished that time. I was able to achieve my Eagle Scout with the help of my parents telling me not to give up. I got the least amount of merit badges possible. Um, but I had a lot of adventures. Uh, our troop was super active, and we went on all kinds of awesome hikes, and uh, I learned a lot. And when I was out in, in creation, I, I was always wondering who had made this incredible landscape. And I wasn't a Christian yet. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I had wonderful parents, but we, we didn't know the Lord. And, and so uh, as, as time went by uh, and I was in Scouts, eventually we ended up going on this rafting uh, trip. And the rafting trip was awesome. And then they're like, well, let's do a canoe trip. And I was like, all right, we'll do the canoe trip. And we went up to Nehalem, uh, north uh, Cascades kind of area, off Highway 20. And my scoutmasters were uh, truly manly men. One was the head of the search and rescue, and the other was like the assistant firefighting chief. So their testosterone together could have powered a small city. And I remember us looking out at the river and it was like late March, early April, and the, uh, the Skagit was high. There were stumps floating down. There was debris. It was super dangerous. And I could tell that even they were considering not having us go out. Um, but of course, they decided, you know, we got this. And, uh, and that's where I met my maker uh, about a day later. <laughs> I hit a log jam and got sucked underneath a huge pile of logs and uh, got recycled over and over until... I lost consciousness and uh, pretty much saw that it was the end of my life. And I cried out to God from under the river and, uh, and he rescued me. And how I came up out of that, I, I don't exactly know. Um, but it was obvious that the Lord had a plan for me. Especially obvious because the guy in the canoe with me uh, was a friend of mine who was a Christian. And he'd been trying to get me to go to church for a while. And his uh, evangelistic style wasn't the most sensitive. Uh, he would try to set up a time for us to hang out, and then he'd invite me to stay the night at his house. And he'd say, hey, tomorrow happens to be Sunday. And I'm like, that's funny. Every time I spend the night at your house, tomorrow's Sunday. He's like, yeah, you want to go to church? No, man, I'm good. Well, you're going to hell. That was, his, that was his evangelism, right? It wasn't the most compassionate, but it was direct, uh, and it really made me mad. And so uh, he happened to be the same guy in the canoe with me when we hit this log jam. But he was already saved, so God just kind of fast-tracked him out the logs and on down the river. He went about a quarter to a half mile down the river, uh, and it took him a while to forgive me. But since he was such a Christian, he did. Um, but meanwhile, I was shivering and shaking and trying to figure out what had happened. And I realized that, uh, that there must be 
a power greater than me. Uh, I was very prideful. I had gotten into weightlifting. I thought I was invincible. Um, But when you have thousands and thousands of gallons of water uh, pounding down on you underneath a 38-degree river, uh, you realize that uh, you have no strength at all. So ironically, full circle, uh, having met in Scouts here in this church basement, having met my maker through Scouts on a river trip, and then being able to come back here uh, almost 30 years later is a joy, right? There's a story to that. And, and God always has story as his way of communicating the gospel. There's no lack of story. Um, so, so as I'm here today, um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is how I was rescued and then how God rescues us and specifically rescuing us from fear, right? Fear is a, a liar and fear is a bully. And, and we've especially experienced some of that over this last 18 months or so with all the uh, unrest and, and pandemic and things like that. I'm going to pray for us, though, before I go any further. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the God who has overcome sin and death and that you are a gracious God who is not intimidated or affected um, by the things that cause us anxiety or cause us to shrink back, that you move toward us always and that in your perfection, Lord, in your holiness, sin and and darkness cannot stand before you. And so we thank you that your grace is the avenue in which you've given us to be connected to you, that you don't give up on us, that you pursue us at all costs. Lord, help us today to recognize where our fear might be causing us to hide from you or simply allow us to understand where fear might be in our lives that we haven't detected so that we can give it over to you and that you can fill us with your joy and with your hope and that we can be then able to go and offer hope and encouragement to others as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Is my mic working fine? Okay, that's good. Me and technology have special issues, so just want to make sure. Um, So my family is not here today. Um, As life goes, things happen. Uh, Friday, as I made the mistake at work at the mission of trying to kind of revise a little bit about what I was going to share, I got a text from my son, my oldest boy, Isaac, who's going to be 18 here in a month. Dad, I broke my tooth, right? And uh, I'm in excruciating pain. And then in the same minute, and I kid you not, I got somebody at my door saying, dad, or dad, sorry, that's how I feel like at the mission. They said, uh, chaplain, one of our guys has passed away and he's out on the couch in the chapel. And this is in the same minute, right? And I'm like, hey, I'm trying to write a sermon here. This is terrible timing. Um, And so uh, I go out and thankfully this gentleman who we thought had passed away hadn't, uh, which is always a tremendous relief. Uh, But it did take some Lazarus type uh, evoking for him to come up out of whatever he was in, a gentleman who's in some hospice care and who is not long for this world. And that's sometimes some of the folks we have at our mission is we have people who are nearing death and they will be uh, completely alone if they don't have the community of the mission. And so in this case, it's a special relationship that we have this individual, uh, really kind of a fascinating individual um, who's from Kentucky, classic, like literal hillbilly and uh, doesn't know anybody here and, and found out he had terminal cancer about six months ago. 
and he was just going to go off in the woods and die. And we said, well, no, come into our, into our mission and build a relationship with us and let us know you. And he ran away twice to try to, try to go uh, die alone, uh, but he kept coming back. And so uh, it's stories like that that make the mission a unique place and a really unique place to work. Uh, it's just not your average day. So between Isaac's tooth being broken and him panicking and our gentleman friend who seemed to have passed on, I was like, it doesn't appear that uh, I'm going to be focusing on what I want to share uh, on that Friday afternoon. So I left it there. But my point in all this is that uh, because the Lord rescued me in my teens, I wondered, what do you have for me to do, Lord? What do you, where do you want me to go? And the last thing I ever imagined in my life was that he would have me end up being uh, a chaplain at a mission. Uh, but he started out with me uh, joining into youth group, right? Uh, God bless all youth pastors out there and everyone involved that helps. Um, and it's an awesome ministry, but there's a lot to that. And so I was a youth and I tested my youth pastors and uh, they were gracious to me and I learned a lot, built a lot of awesome friendships. And then I went on to become a youth pastor myself uh, over at Hope in Christ Church, which is just off of uh, Sunset and James there. And while I was there, um, I had the opportunity to find out that that's really what captured my heart was youth ministry. Uh, the environment that's, that I got to be in with people, the relationships I got to build, all that fueled my passion for uh, reaching out to those like myself that had wondered, what is my identity? Where do I belong? Who am I? And then as I went through youth ministry, uh, I managed to meet up with a group of other youth pastors and um, Mark happened to be one of those individuals. And I believe we were meeting down at uh, where Mitch Senti, who has uh, been over in Vision Ministries for years, it was called Three Trees, I think is where we met, downtown. And Three Trees Cafe was meant to be an outreach for people that were uh, experiencing homelessness or were low income, and it was coffee house and a place to just kind of build relationships. And I met Mark there and a bunch of other youth pastors, and, and we started to form kind of a, I think we'd meet like once a month and hang out and just share about youth ministry, because youth pastors feel like they're, you know, a, a kind of unique breed of people looking for people like them to support one another. And I started to tell a story about how I had once been approached by a homeless individual uh, when I was in my, I think I was in my late teens. And this guy came up to me, just, I was downtown and I was on the street and he came up to me and he said, hey buddy, he said, you give me a dollar or I'm going to stab you. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, and he pulls out this huge knife. And he comes up to me, and he takes the knife, and at the last minute, he turns his fist, right? So if you had a knife in your hand, and you turn your fist like that, the knife isn't going to hit you. It's just going to be the fist. And he did that, and then he laughed hysterically, right? He thought it was the funniest thing ever. He was just playing a joke on me. Not the best joke to play on people, pretending to stab them. Uh, and so I did this to Mark. I showed him the example of how it worked uh, as we were sitting together with the youth pastors down at Three Trees. And I used, I think, a less dangerous knife. I think it was a butter knife. Mark might disagree with that. Um, but Mark went, <gasps> you know, just gasped. And, uh, and it took him a minute to get his breath back, which is exactly what happened to me when the homeless guy did that to me. And uh, so there's a little story for you. What does that have to do with youth ministry? It has to do with the fact that I, uh, I had always, growing up in Bellingham, because I'm born and raised here, I always had a bit of a fear uh, and an anger and an anxiety and generally more just a confusion as to why are there 
homeless people, right? Especially before I was a Christian. What, what is it that people are just standing off freeway ramps, flying signs? What is it that people are looking so despairing or so angry? How, how, how did it come to this? And because I was raised in a home that was safe, I didn't understand why people were literally outside throughout the year asking for money and looking miserable. And so I wondered, is there any place that I can, you know, go to make a difference to help with these people? And I kind of gave up that effort. And I even kind of started to more despise or resent the homeless. But then I became a Christian as I became a Christian, I felt that conviction that only the Holy Spirit can really bring on a person from the inside out. And that conviction was, these people need to be rescued. These people appear to be in a place of complete despair. And what are you going to do about it, Aaron? And I remember being like, whoa, hey, I, I, I don't know, and it's too big for me. This is too complicated. And so I tried to really... Um, do what most of us do, and, and that's hope that somebody else would do it, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and that conviction kept on me and on me. And so once I got into youth ministry and I started to lead the youth, um, I was foolish enough to say, hey, let's go to Seattle and let's do this thing called Mountains to Missions, where you spend three days in the inner city, three days in the mountains. I mean, youth ministry is basically where, you know, you discover how much risk you're going to take in life. And so I brought my, my youth to Seattle. We did this outreach uh, experience on Capitol Hill. It was terrifying. And the first person I confronted uh, to try to give a sock to, uh, you, you put a bunch of hygiene things, toothbrushes, soap, uh, you know, the basics in a sock, and then you stuff that sock in another nice wool sock, and you go out and you, you deliver these to folks because that's what a lot of homeless folks need is they need just basic hygiene. And I tried to show the youth group in Seattle that, look, there's really nothing to be afraid of. Uh, this is, you know, kind of like wild animals. They're more afraid of us than we are of them. And we get out there, and the first guy I see is looking extra wild, right? And sometimes we imagine what homeless people look like, and we're right. Sometimes their hair's everywhere, and they're talking out loud, and they're screaming and spinning around, and, and half their clothes are off. And this happened to be one of those guys, and I'm like, well, I'm going to set the example. And so I marched up there with my one sock, and I said, hey, sir. And he's, you know, he's, he's somewhere else. He's with me five feet away, but he's somewhere else. And he turns around, screams at me, you know, what do you want? And I said, I have, I have some hygiene things for you. I explained, I said, this is from our church. And he looked at me and he says, and I can't repeat the words, but he says, who gives blankety blank one sock, right? Who gives a homeless person one sock? So he thought I was mocking him because you could only see the one sock look like a stocking at Christmas. And I'm like, no, but inside are all these, he wouldn't have it. Just absolutely furious. Thought I was giving him one sock, right? So I turn around to tell the youth group that, hey, this isn't how it's normally going to go. I turn around and there's nobody there, right? They had gone like three blocks away to the Starbucks and like went in and sat down, you know? And I thought, well, this is obvious that I am not cut out for this kind of work because I can't convince one homeless individual that we care about him and that I wouldn't give him one sock because I'm not a cruel monster, right? So that was the beginning of me saying, well, Lord, obviously this isn't for me. Uh, this isn't what we should be doing. Uh, but what I discovered is that that's exactly what the Lord wanted. And in a lot of things, and we know this, first attempts are not the most successful. 
And sometimes we have a hard uh, understanding of what success is in following the Lord and being obedient. Um, so I kept at it, but, but youth group kind of came to a close, that era of working with youth. And my youth were really lost. They, they brought the book of Satan, actually, the first day, uh, because I had prayed that God would bring lost people to our church. And what we had was a bunch of church kids uh, that had gone on and graduated, and we didn't have a youth group. So I prayed, Lord, bring unchurched youth. And that first night, we had 12 to 15. They started a bonfire in the parking lot with pallets, had the book of Satan, danced around the fire. I'm like, what is it with me in life? Is this normal? Is this how this goes? I mean, couldn't we start out just a little bit easier? And so over that four years of working with those youth, it was me learning about how to build relationship with people in a way that was authentic enough that, that I, my hope was they'd see Jesus in the midst of it. And so after that youth group ended, I was really left at odds with what to do next. And I had no idea where to go. And one of the last events I did with the youth group was to do a, a dinner at the uh, mission. And so we went down, we served dinner at the mission. And while I was there, there was a gentleman who was graduating from the New Life program, uh, and that was a program I went to run for about 10 years after that. But at the time, I didn't know about it. He shared his testimony with the youth group. You could have heard a pin drop. All those youth were kind of on that path. They were on their way to destruction already. And so when this individual shared with them what Christ had done and where he was at now in his 30s, um, I just knew. I could almost like a cartoon, I could see this light kind of glowing over here. And it was the Lord saying, this is where I want you next. And I was like, come on, really? I, I don't know anything about this. I've had this burden on my heart before I was a Christian, but I am not capable of, of knowing how to enter into relationship with the homeless community. I had too much fear. And so I, I continued to avoid that. And um, it wasn't until I really got a tour from the executive director about a week later that I realized that there is a church in Bellingham and Whatcom County um, that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's what I was looking for because as a youth pastor, as much as I loved working with the youth and as much as I longed to continue to do that and be some like super old guy that could somehow relate well to the youth, I knew there was a timeline on it. But I didn't know where to go next where I could feel like I was really serving. And so the mission made it clear that there is a church in town that's open like that. And so I interviewed and um, I, I, I was hired on as the first chaplain at that time, 15 years ago. I was the first chaplain that they ever made a position for. I was the pastor of evangelism, which is a, a lofty title and is intimidating to me. And I remember coming into the chapel the first day and everybody lining up in the chapel uh, that used to be how we did it for lunch before we had the drop-in center or base camp. And these rough men, it was winter, and everybody was rough, and everything stunk, and it was dirty. And I sat in my little office, and I looked out at all these men, and I thought, oh, maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I've made a mistake. I don't know what to do. But I felt this warmth. I felt this unusual wash of warmth come over me. Uh, as the Lord was saying, no, this is where I want you because this is where I am, right? And, and as a um, person who was saved from death in a dramatic way out of the river at 15, I just wanted to be where the Lord was. That's just what I wanted. Um, I just want to be where you are. 
And uh, I get a bit emotional about that because sometimes we fight to find out where is the Lord? Where are you serving today, Lord? Where are you alive and well? And my fear was is that, well, maybe in our society, maybe in the, uh, in the West and all the busyness, maybe you've just kind of withdrawn from, from these places. But of course that's untrue. Those were my fears. Uh, and as often my fears get the better of me. So when I entered into, um, when I entered into the mission and I started serving there, what I didn't realize uh, is that I had allowed a false god to enter into my life and take the throne of my heart, right? So I'm transitioning with you guys now around the reality of what I was carrying with me from before I was even a believer. Um, Before I was a believer, I had these false beliefs as a child that I had inherited from a broken family. Even though my family loved me and they were good people, we all have brokenness in our family. There's always some dysfunction. We're just imperfect people. That's just the nature. It's not a guilt trip. It's not to blame or shame. And so I'd become blinded by some of these false beliefs. And one of these false beliefs uh, told me that if I'm not in control, something bad will happen, right? That was one of the false beliefs. I didn't know this. I wasn't aware of this, right? Okay, so this is about 10 years ago. This is all starting to kind of culminate into a real problem. Took that long. Uh, I'm a father. Uh, I, you know, at that time have three kids, all young. Um, I, my kids now, Thaddeus, just turned 16 yesterday. Isaac turned 18, or he turns 18 in September. And Miriam, my youngest, turned 13 recently. So at the time, they're just little. So I've got that going on. One of our children's diagnosed with severe mental illness. The other's autistic. Um, my wife's suffering significant depression and some other health issues. I'm a new chaplain, but I've been there long enough to see a lot of death and a lot of um, pain. I myself am questioning my abilities. And all the while, I am trying to present as though it's all good. Because my fear is if people know my own brokenness, if they know how weak I am and how fearful I am, then how can I possibly lead, right? And it must be confirmation that I don't have what it takes. And my pride and my anxiety wouldn't allow me to say, I am drowning in this. And a lot of pastors go through that. They're, they're kind of looked to to be that person that, that just takes care of it and that somehow on the inside, life isn't happening for them like everybody else. And so this idea that if I'm not in control, bad things will happen what that does is that often creates in us this incredible isolation. We become isolated people because our secrets tell us that if you let people know this, like basically you, you, are, you are sharing that you're false. You are revealing the fact that you have a need. And this comes back to childhood. Having a need when I was a child at times wasn't a safe thing. It wasn't a safe thing to have a need because of some of the dysfunction in my family. Namely, my brother who had severe mental illness. Right? We usually are attracted to ministry and work where our family uh, story ties into those things. Where our passion for helping others comes from a wound. And so as I perceived that my needs were a confirmation of weakness or a lack of faith or 
an inability. Uh, my biggest fear is that God was just displeased with me. Um, and ultimately, it was proof that I was a failure in every way that I'd strived so hard to succeed. And, and again, I wasn't really aware that this was going on. I just kept trying to will myself to just do good work. And so my fear of pain and loss and the threat of rejection, it kept me silent. And so what did I do to cope? I focused on everybody else. It's such a unique place to hide. It's such an unusual place to hide is to be in plain sight and focus on helping everybody else. And it's easy to justify, right? It's easy to justify helping other people because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And that's a good thing. But it had become something that I was using to hide away from being able to ask God for his grace. And it kept me from being able to be held accountable by asking other men to help me in these areas where I carried great fear and pain. And so as I continued to try to do that, I'd become so focused on fixing or changing others um, that again, I'd isolated myself from my own brokenness and my need for healing and help and support. And my pride and anxiety, they just grew stronger and stronger uh, and, and deeper. And so as I attempted to keep up appearances, right? Because at home, I need to be strong for my wife, for my kids, at the mission for the men, and specifically for about 10 years as I oversaw the New Life program and our transitional housing program, I was the only staff over those 20 plus men for over a decade. And so they had a relationship with me that was extremely intimate. Like they relied on me for their safety and I was codependent upon them to succeed and codependency was what finally became unearthed as I reached the point of meltdown and and a lot of us maybe have heard of codependency but it seems like there's not a whole lot of understanding around what it is right codependency is literally our worth and our value being determined by how well those people around us that we love or care about are doing So if I'm really a good father, then my children are going to love the Lord and they're going to follow him and they're going to have joy in their heart and they're just going to be good kids. And if for some reason that isn't the way it is, then it must be a reflection directly on my inability. I must be failing. And at the mission, if our men are not graduating their programs, if they relapse, if they die, if they decide to walk away from their faith, well, that must be a reflection on my inability or my lack of godly um, uh, obedience to be able to help influence these men. So all these proofs of things that seemed like failure were stacking up against me. And this is where pride and anxiety are so unique. My pride kept me from asking for help. My anxiety told me that essentially the only way you can fix this is by figuring it out up here, right? But all of us know that inside of our heads, there's quite a mess at times. And so I wasn't inviting anybody in. Um, So there's a saying in recovery circles that says you're as sick as your secrets. You are as sick as your secrets. And I was becoming sick. I was becoming toxic, and I didn't realize it. Um, And so it reached a point where 
I couldn't keep it up anymore. Like I literally felt like I was going crazy. And so right before I cried out for help, the last thing that had to go was what they call a protective personality, right? And then all of us have some of those. It's these personalities we put on to keep ourselves from being hurt, usually almost always emotionally. And mine was the hero. I'm the hero. I'm going to save the day. I'm going to change people that are sad into people that are happy. I'm going to bring people out of a place of loneliness to belonging. I am going to help people know Jesus. And in effect, I will be able to say that I was a part of that. Well, that cape that I was wearing, right? If anybody's ever seen The Incredibles, uh, the cartoon series and movie series, The Incredibles, they talk about the danger of wearing a cape, right? Capes get caught in stuff. Uh, if you fly too close to an airplane, you get sucked into the uh, turbine. If you get too near a, a building, you might get caught on one of the gargoyles. Uh, my cape had to come off. I had to admit that, that the only hero in this story is Jesus Christ. And that's what I was missing, is that I had been trying to be Jesus Christ to individuals to the degree that I was trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't that I was intending that like from the depths of who I was. I wasn't trying to take the place of God, but in my woundedness and in my need for approval and acceptance, I had taken on a role that simply couldn't be done. And so as I let my cape come off, I realized at that point um, that I needed rescue, right? I thought I came to the mission to rescue other people. And God was like, ha ha. I got you, right? He always lays a beautiful trap of truth and love and freedom for us. And all we have to do is be obedient enough to step into it. And so I stepped into it and he had set this longer plan in store for me to, to be able to realize, oh my gosh, the mission is what it took for Aaron to get well. It wasn't these other people. It wasn't the homeless it is, but it was Aaron as well. He knew what it would take. And so oftentimes when I would share uh, sermons at the mission, the guys would come up to me and they would say, hey, thank you, right? That was great. I feel good and everybody feel good. And then one day one guy came up to me and he said, you know that sermon you gave? He said, that was for you. I remember my pride got in the way and I was like, oh, no, no. You know, I was like, that, that's for you, man. He said, no, no, that, that sermon was for you. And it was a sermon about fear. And I was trying to encourage everyone to trust in the Lord. And this guy saw right through me, right? And the homeless are oftentimes are like bloodhounds. They have been there and they've done that. So they can see when somebody needs something because there are people in need all the time. So he could see that I needed to be rescued from my fear. And that's the bridge that we share as people with those that are experiencing homelessness is that we need rescue often from our fear and our anxiety and our pride. But, but often our fear is what really blocks us from receiving uh, the good news of Christ. And so for me, um, it was humbling to recognize that that made me uh, more willing to see my brothers and sisters in homelessness as people who shared a relationship with the same Jesus. Because oftentimes that's what keeps us from working with the homeless is we may not intend it, but we kind of wonder, is this another species of people? Like what's really going on with them? And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, they are, they're just like we are, except their lives have become such a mess and they've lost relationship to such a degree 
that they really don't have the ability or understanding of how to receive help. It would have been me if I'd kept going. It would have been me if I didn't have family that was stable enough to absorb some of that chaos and breakdown in my 30s. It would have been me if I didn't have uh, some employment and a home, right? We're, we're a lot closer to poverty than we realize sometimes. So again, another word for fear is anxiety, and, and no matter what station in life you're in, we, we all suffer it, right? It's how we cope that, that brings us either closer to Jesus or further away. It's, it's how we cope with our fear that either allows us to have more intimacy with God or to feel more isolated, and, and just so you guys know, most coping behaviors, which is just another word for addictive behaviors, they're just efforts for us to feel normal. That's, that's all they are. We drink a little too much so we can take the edge off. Uh, maybe we smoke a little weed so we can just feel less anxiety. Maybe we get on our devices and we spend hours distracting ourselves because it's an opportunity to just kind of numb out from all of the, the chaos around us. Uh, Maybe we struggle with pornography because, again, it gives us a fantasy. It takes us away. gives us instant gratification. We're in control is the illusion. All addiction is the illusion that we're in control. Might happen to be codependency where I'm trying to change other people to make my worth valid, right? And I got to do that under the guise of the Christian faith. I got to do that and and, and hyper-spiritualize my own brokenness, And so in a sense, I was becoming a Pharisee as well. The number one thing that I never wanted to become. I remember as a new Christian reading about the Pharisees and being like, yeah, Jesus, get him, right? Tell him what's up. Uh, And then as I became a Christian, it's easy to hide behind titles. It's easy to hide behind uh, status or recognition. So these universal ways in which we cope with anxiety, I mean, one way I cope with anxiety is I clean, like, I, I like to organize and clean the house, right? And I used to be like, well, I guess I'm the only one that cares enough, you know, to vacuum under the couch and clean the dog hair. And I would play the victim, right? I'd be the martyr. So we can, we can cope in easy ways that don't seem like they're going to kill us. You know, if I'm cleaning a closet too often versus, you know, shooting heroin, obviously one is far more dangerous than the other. It's heroin, by the way, is the one that's more dangerous. And uh, so... But at the same time, it doesn't mean that I'm not losing the value of being in relationship with people, right? So as a perfectionist, which is also a sign of codependent people, as a perfectionist, I'm more concerned about uh, performing than I am about relationship. I'm more about law-keeping than I am people-keeping. And it's just another way for me to try to cope with my fear and my anxiety, So with the homeless, once they reach relational bankruptcy, that is when essentially you have reached the point of no return. It's one of the differences between me going through anxiety and fear and even reaching a real big meltdown in my mid-30s, having a crisis of faith and needing to be rescued and repent of some things I'd kept in secret sin. I had a framework of support around me. But if you are homeless, it means you've been practicing addictive behaviors long enough that you've lost the relationships that would keep you afloat. And so at that point, you are now um, truly in trouble because the opposite of addiction is connection, okay? The opposite of addiction is connection. 
And that's what I started to realize as I cried out for help. And uh, Hans is one of those guys, the, the, uh, the, the, the big cheese at the mission. Hans is one of those guys, and a guy named Kevin and a guy named Matt. The four of us get together once a month, and then we go out for a meal. And once a year, we go on a, a retreat, and we've done that now for over 10 years. That was part of my solution to becoming a real person was to have a group of men who I could share my brokenness with. I could just be honest. This is, things are not okay. Things are not okay in my family life. Things are not okay at the mission. Um, I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm alone. They were the ones there as brothers and, and we could do for each other in real time what often can't happen when we're trying to present or keep up appearances. And oftentimes in the church, we, we keep up appearances. How's everybody doing? Oh, I'm fine, fine, good, good. Yeah, the kids, uh-huh. But we don't really know what's going on underneath the surface. And we can live like that, and we do, for long periods of time. But are we really growing, and are we really flourishing? Are we really living an abundant life? And so my, my beginning of friendships that I could be honest about and vulnerable with my weakness then took the cravings out, right? It reduced the draw to go and seek out addictive behaviors. It just... They weren't as appealing because when you have real quality relationships with people, that's what you get hungry for. That's how God built us. God knows that we're not meant to be alone. And that is not just a marriage scripture. That's a relationship scripture, right? God himself is in relationship with himself. He has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. Even God isn't alone. So the good news is, is even though I came from a, a family that had, uh, uh, you know, the Olympics, I haven't been watching them because I, I can't really find the time to, but they're fascinating to me. But my family, if they could have had an Olympic category for warriors, we would have been gold medalists, right? Well, my, my dad's mom and my mom's mom, they were incredible warriors. I mean, like when you count rings on a tree to see how old it is, like the, the, the wrinkles on their face of worry, if you could have counted those, would have been innumerable. And it was, it was crippling anxiety. It wasn't like just, oh, it's funny because they're worried about, you know, the price of milk. Like they were, they were terrified all the time. And one of my grandmas came to faith months before she passed, months before um, and I believe it was God's way of getting her attention. And it was beautiful to see her come to faith, but it took 70 plus years. And my other grandma, I'm not sure, only the Lord knows. But both of them were gold medalist warriors. And so in a sense, I'm predisposed like an alcoholic. If you have an alcoholic in your bloodline, you might be predisposed to alcoholism. It's a disease model and it's also uh, an addiction. Um, so I thought worry was just a part of caring. That's what I was trained up to believe. If you care about somebody, you'll panic every time they might be in harm's way, right? Um, but then as I started to read in scripture, and as I started to come out of my moment of panic um, about 10 years ago, and I started to really look into what God says about anxiety and worry, I realized that actually, for the most part, uh, worry uh, and anxiety is a choice, and I don't say that lightly. I know that uh, like my son is diagnosed with severe uh, social anxiety and a number of other mental illnesses. My brother, my dad, um, a ton of us. I'm sure I myself would probably be diagnosed. I've just avoided that. You know? um, but the reality is, is that the amount of fear and anxiety I carry would probably qualify me 
uh, uh, with that designation if I met with a mental health professional. The good news is, is that I have a choice that I don't have to worry. And the only reason I have that choice is because the Holy Spirit working in me gives me the scriptures and gives me the promises of God to counteract that, right? Apart from that, that, that wouldn't be possible. And, and that's something that is a part of my codependent struggle still, like with my oldest son, Isaac, who's made it clear I'm not a believer, Dad, and I don't want to hear about the gospel, and I don't want you to pursue me in that way. Everything in me wants to, right? Everything in me wants to convince him that Jesus is Lord, mainly because I long for him to have peace and joy and salvation. But I can't force that. Or I could actually force that and probably lose all relationship I have with him. So these aspects of struggle with how to trust God bring me to scriptures like this. And so today's scripture is going to be out of Philippians. Okay, And I saw you guys have the ESV. And if not, you have your devices. So it's going to be Philippians chapter 4. Uh, verse 4 through uh, 9, okay? And it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I didn't know that reasonableness was a word until recently. Um, and supplication, right? It says, uh, in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is a, um, it's more of a posture of the heart. It's more of a, a deep surrender, uh, it's an aspect of prayer, but it's really an earnest pleading with God. And so I'm given this scripture uh, to be able to be told that I can choose to be anxious. That's one of the powerful things about having Christ in our lives is he gives us a choice. I can choose to hold on to my anxieties and entertain certain thoughts. My imagination, I'm an, I'm an artist by trade, I have all kinds of things going on in my mind, right? I'm probably ADD as well, so my attention is all over the place. Um, so I can imagine things and I can scare myself. Uh, anxiety when I counsel the men at the mission, because that's one of my main roles as, as the chaplain as I counsel our men, is I talk about the what ifs, right? Anxiety is the what ifs. Uh, well, what if such and such a thing happens? Well, what if this falls apart. What if I get sick? What if somebody doesn't like me? I mean, the what ifs are like, uh, you know, spirits that haunt us all the time. And I can entertain those what ifs, or I can say, you know what, I'm going to bag those suckers up and I'm going to put them by the cross because Christ already died and rose for those anxieties. I'm not going to give fear that kind of power in my life. 
And so as God helped me dethrone this codependency in my heart, right? As a false God, we have false gods in our lives that sometimes we're unaware of. Uh, many of us in the country of the United States, we worship family, family first. There are many people I've met who are beautiful people. They don't have Jesus Christ in their life, but they worship their family. And so in a sense, the Lord was saying, part of your codependency, Aaron, is that you are trying to worship your family. You're trying to make them first. You've got to let me be first. Uh, One day when my son was having an especially severe mental health crisis, he threatened to kill himself in front of me. And he said, you choose, it's either God or me. Uh, And as he held a knife to his throat and a very sharp knife, I said, the good news is, is I don't have to do that. I said, because if I don't love God first, if I don't receive God's love first, I can't give you that love. So the blessing is, is that I don't have to choose. I can do both, right? I can do both. And it made him very angry. And by God's grace, he didn't do any harm to himself. But in these extreme situations that we're faced with, which are rare, there's also a lot of non-extreme situations where we have the opportunity to choose how we face our fears. And we only get to see where Jesus shows up uh, when we allow him to meet us in that. Because if we're trying to control the outcome of everything, which is what a codependent individual does, uh, a perfectionist does, Uh, someone who's fearful of of keeping up appearances. We're trying to control the outcome of everything. People's perceptions of us, our circumstances, things that might go wrong. And all the while that we do that, we really miss out on seeing how Jesus just shows up. And I'm not saying to be irresponsible. There's all kinds of things that we need to take responsibility for. I'm just saying, where in our lives are we blocking God from being the God of the outcome? Right? Where are we not surrendering certain things that we keep trying to control? And oftentimes, they're relationships. In fact, the number one cause of relapse in recovery circles is, is relationships. So the good news here as well is, is that in um, Philippians 4.8, it says, uh, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, so there's, there's a direction right there. Think about those things. Because what happens is we tend to become so distracted by the bad news, right? By the bad news. We, we just don't think about the things that Christ calls us to focus on. And what we put into our heads, we all know, is what owns us. What we put into our eyes is what we become attracted to. What we listen to has influence. I know these things because for years before I was a believer, I listened to certain things, I watched certain things, I hung out with certain people. And those things affected me and I'm still trying to get well from that. Okay. And then Philippians 4.9 goes on to give us even more of a direction. It says, what you have learned received and heard and seen in me. Okay, and this is Paul speaking. He's speaking from prison, right? I love that about the gospel. Paul's saying, what you've seen in me already practiced. And he's saying in a sense as uh, vicariously as what you've seen in Christ at work through me with you. Now put that into practice. He says, practice these things. And here's the promise. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's not writing from some chill space where he's enjoying a filet mignon and maybe taking a dip in the jacuzzi. He's in prison 
And he's telling us, hey, remember how I lived with you. Remember how Christ works in your life. And then follow that. Practice the things that I told you before. And oftentimes I want to blame God for my lack of peace or my incredible anxiety. And I want to say, well, it's just not enough. Your, your, your grace doesn't seem to be sufficient. But I've been irresponsible often. I've been irresponsible in not really focusing my heart and my eyes and my posture toward the Lord. I've, I've distracted myself with other things that are wonderfully distractive for the minute. And they kind of anesthetize or numb out my anxiety. But just like any addiction, then when I come back to myself, well, the problem is still there. So, so God is inviting us to, to do very specific things. In fact, there's, there's seven things that they talk about uh, in that first uh, last of the two verses, 4.8. It says, whatever is true, okay? So one of them is whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, Right? So there's seven things that we can focus on that will draw us out of our anxiety. It's like coming up out of a basement, and if we walk up those seven steps, we can get further away from the darkness. Or we can choose to just stay in the darkness because it's so familiar. And that's part of the struggle with anxiety and depression, is that we become so familiar with with kind of a sick comfort from that, that it's, sometimes it's hard to break that. And that's why we need support. So again, please hear me that I am not trying to minimize on any level mental health. If there's anybody that's been more um, affected uh, by it, um, which there are, but I'm in that top tier at working in the mission for all the years I have and having a family with some brokenness. I understand trauma and I understand mental illness pretty well, but I also know that our God is bigger than having to believe that we're controlled and oppressed and that we have no hope to find healing from that. And that's one of the lies that fear will communicate to us. Being a bully and a liar, it will tell us, no, there's no hope. Just despair, right? And that's the, that's the evil one. That's the adversary who would speak that. Um, and I've gotten to see a tremendous amount of healing at the mission, right? I've gotten to see some healing in my own family's life as well, but I get to see the Holy Spirit alive and well at the mission where I see people's lives who are absolutely on the way to destruction. There's no reason at all that they should be alive, let alone praising God. And so God has blessed me as well And that as I took the risk to enter into that work, he also said, I'm gonna show you something unique about my grace, right? And sometimes people will say, what is it like working at the mission? I'll say it's like having backstage passes to God's grace. It's like getting behind the curtain and seeing what really goes on. Uh, and is the mission perfect? Absolutely not, right? But we have a perfect God who shows up there. And uh, God shows up in many other places. It just happens to be that's the unique area that I've gotten to see him. Uh, but again, the thing that binds us to the homeless is the struggles that we have with fear, the struggles that we have with our secrets, the struggles that we have with hiding away, uh, those things that we're not sure we can trust other people to know. So, so I just want to pass this on to you uh, as, as a last scripture for today. It's one that uh, the Lord put in my pocket literally years ago. 
Uh, and I tend to be somebody who likes to believe God does really amazing things that don't make sense. But then sometimes when they happen to me, I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's just, you know, and I try to explain it away because it is a little, a little freaky and cool. Um, but years ago, God just put this little construction piece of paper, a little red, looked like a, you know, fifth grader would have drawn a picture on it. It's just a torn piece of paper, but it said First Peter 5 and 6, and it was in my pocket. And I found it right in the middle of kind of this season of falling apart in my life. And I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to know what it was because I was actually kind of, ironically, fearful because I couldn't find anybody that would confess to having written it or put it in my pocket. And it was in a pair of pants I hadn't worn in months and months. So finally I looked it up. Uh, and, and it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Now, you would have thought I would have been comforted by that. I was, I was angry because I was hurting so bad at that time that I wanted God to tell me that I was doing the right thing. Sometimes when we're mad and we, you know, have... Uh, issues we go to somebody and we pour out all of our gossip and we secretly hope they'll be like oh yeah you're right you know blah 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 but God is a God who's like no I'm a God of boundaries and so I'm going to let you know that you need to humble yourself but if you do the promise is I will lift you up at the proper time I will rescue you from that brokenness and on top of that uh, I care for you, right? I do this because I care for you. So he's inviting me to cast all my anxieties upon him as well. So that scripture has helped me through the last three or four years especially because I can choose to humble myself. I can choose in the morning to get low, which I didn't do before. And when I say low, I mean my posture in my heart that, Father, today I die to myself. I take up my cross and I follow you in exchange for your Holy Spirit. That, my anxiety right there, it drops big percentages when I do that because I start my day out getting Aaron's will out of the way and I ask Jesus to put his will upon me. It doesn't mean my circumstances change, but it means that I have the ability to trust that he goes ahead of me, right? Uh, the, the Lord of heaven's armies fights for me. And so he'll do the same for you. I, I'm not trying to make this about me this morning. I'm just trying to use examples from my life because I know they're universal. I know that um, we all have secret pain and things that we have struggled to bring into the light. And Satan uses those uh, to bind us and to keep us with our heads low. Uh-huh. So the real thing in all this that I hope you take away is that you have the invitation to confess your secret worries or your secret sins that you've used to protect yourself from being really known. And that as a result, you can then invite others into your life. And scripture says, confess your sins to God and another. We often confess our sins to God, but to another, that's where we start to just freeze up. But the another is where Jesus shows up and says, and when you do, I'm going to lift that shame or I'm going to lift that anxiety or guilt off of you. Because when you do it with another as well, you recognize in the face of that person, the grace of God. You see that God is a God who's truly there to free you from that and that his promises are true.
All right, thank you so much for bearing with me there. God bless you.